please turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. We'll be reading the entirety of Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, but the sermon will focus primarily on those last three verses. The text is also printed for you on page 5 in your bulletin. Malachi chapter 4, starting in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so there will not leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this closing word for us here in the book of Malachi. And God, just like your people were in these days, we are a people waiting waiting for the return of our Savior. And God, you call us to the same thing you called your people back then, to remember your law, to hold fast to your promises, even as we just sang, as you hold fast to us. May we hear what you have for us this morning in your word. May your spirit work in us that we may wait with faithfulness, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever seen a movie or read a book where the ending simply did not fit? Maybe the ending ruined what to that point had been a perfectly good story. Just the other night, Bethany and I, while we were just sitting and visiting, we were talking about some of our favorite and least favorite movie endings. And both of us have a very different definition of what makes an ending good or bad, but we did agree that there are some movies and books that have either been redeemed by the ending or have failed miserably because of the ending. One of my favorite literary endings actually is one that may seem a bit odd on the surface. It is from the book The Natural by Bernard Malamud. I read it during my senior year of high school English class, largely because I had seen the movie by the same name in 1984, starring Robert Redford, who was one of my father's favorite actors. And for those who know the film, It ends with Redford's character, Roy Hobbs, heroically crushing that ever-familiar game-winning home run that propels his team to the World Series and validates what to that point had been a very troubled baseball career. If you know the scene, you know it well and you're familiar with it because the ball, in glorious fashion, smashes into one light bulb and that somehow sets off every light bulb to explode in this fireworks-like display as Hobbs is running around the bases to some dramatic Uh, music that everyone is cheering and going crazy about. But the novel's ending is far different. It is night, if you will, to the film's day. Because in the novel, Hobbs does not smash the the game-winning home run. He swings and misses on three pitches. His career is not validated, but is forever tarnished because it's proven that he accepted a bribe from the team's owner to throw the game. And the last scene of the book is actually Roy walking into the owner's office, throwing the money at him, getting into a fist fight with him, and then weeping bitterly as a young boy witnesses all of it and says, 
Say it ain't so, Roy. With such a depressing finish, you may now be questioning my standard for good endings. And I will admit, there, there's almost nothing good about that ending. But if you've read that story, the ending is extremely fitting. It's almost perfect. Because Roy Hobbs in the novel is not a hero. He's a character, a, a tragic character. Throughout the novel, he is repeatedly tripped up by his own ego, his own pride, his own ambition, even his own stupidity. And so in a way, this humiliating end fits almost perfectly to the story that the author is telling. And now all this talk of fitting endings is appropriate as we come now to the ending of the book of Malachi, but also the ending to the entire Old Testament. Because remember, after these words, this time period, there is going to come 400 years of divine silence in Israel's history. They're going to be a waiting people. And the consensus in church history, in fact, has not been that Malachi verses 4 through 6 is a fitting conclusion to the book or even the entire Old Testament. Because if we're honest, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction is not the kind of ending that makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. And so for this reason, in some of the Septuagint, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, which our English order and structure is built, they make a few tweaks to these verses. Some take verse 5 and repeat it at the end of verse 6, so at least we have the promise of Elijah coming. Others take verse 4 and just move that to the end of verse 6, so at least there's a call to remember Moses, and it's a little more hopeful than a decree of utter destruction. But just as I am convinced as to the ending of the novel of the natural, I am even more convinced that Malachi's ending, as it's written here, is a fitting ending. These verses are not obscure. They're not hopeless. They don't need to be rearranged or tweaked a little bit here or there. Because Malachi 4, 4 through 6, as one scholar even writes, provides closure for the entire prophetic corpus, drawing attention to the two canons of Scripture, the law and the prophets. And here's the key point. The people are encouraged to live in hope with these sources of Revelation canon. So these are words of hope, even as they accurately summarize Malachi's message. They would prove to be critical words for a people presently waiting on the Lord and who would end up waiting for 400 more years for the Lord to come. And so may we find hope and renewal this morning even as we wait on him. Because in this ending we see that covenant faithfulness means obedience to God's word and trust in his promise. Covenant faithfulness means obedience to God's word and trust in his promise. And you may not remember way back on July 4th when I entitled this series, A Call to Covenant Faithfulness. Covenant fidelity is the aim of this book. Everything written to this point is designed to call Israel back to faithfulness to the covenant that God had made with his people. The sins that have been addressed, they expose the people's infidelity. The words for the future promised hope for the repentance, but judgment for the obstinate. And so in a way, verses 4 through 6 ties a nice little bow and ribbon on Malachi and the entire Old Testament. And so we'll look at this closure in two points listed in your bulletin on page 7. The first is honor the law, and the second is hold to the promise. 
And it is in these that we are reminded and called to pursue and persevere in covenant faithfulness until the day of the Lord comes. So our first point comes from verse 4. Honor the law. And over and over again, we have seen in Malachi how Israel's chief problem was first and foremost a lack of fear of the Lord. But closely connected to a lack of fear was a lack of regard for God's law. They failed his law because they failed to fear him. Because a healthy and vibrant fear of the Lord would naturally lead to a willing and joyful obedience to the commands that God had given. And if you think about the particular sins that Malachi addresses, we see that they are clearly prohibited in the law. And consider how repentance and blessing in Malachi calls the people who are equally proclaimed in the law as well. Repentance and blessing are also proclaimed there. The love of God for his people is tangibly seen in Exodus and confirmed over and over again in the first few chapters of Deuteronomy. The proper worship of God from the priests and the people alike is outlined in exhaustive detail in the book of Leviticus. Faithfulness in marriage and all other relationships within the covenant community are too frequent in the Pentateuch to be ignored. And the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience take up the entire chapter, one entire chapter of Moses' final sermon in Deuteronomy 28. And even repentance and forgiveness are emphasized not if the people fail, but when they would fail in chapter 30. But still, even if the people lack the ability or the access to read or to listen to all these words, the ten words that were given to them from Moses would have been more than enough. Adherence to the Ten Commandments alone would have more than adequately remedied all that ailed Israel at this point in time. Because as we know, the Ten Commandments instructed them on all matters relating to love of God, fear of his name, proper worship, and love of others. As Christ would summarize in his teaching of the law. Worship, marriage, honoring the Lord, stealing, and more are all contained in those ten words given to Moses on the mountaintop. And so it is then for this reason that Malachi comes and in closing this book calls the people to remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules. And this word remember, it's an interesting choice of words. It's a familiar word used throughout the Old Testament law, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. In the first 13 chapters, or seven chapters, it's used about 13 times. But most of the time, it's referred to remembering what God has done, his saving works in the company of the people. The context in Deuteronomy is remember what God has done, remember who he is, do not forget. We've seen this idea of remembering over this past week as we have remembered the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Similar remembering what has been done, let us not forget have been told in stories about that faithful day. In fact, not forgetting was a refrain in many of the speeches that you, you may have heard over the course of the week, and particularly yesterday. We were rightly told to remember the fallen, remember the heroes, and even the spirit of unity of that day. But that kind of remembering is not what Malachi is emphasizing here. Because here, for the first time, this remembering is tied not to God's saving works, but to his law. Built in, then, is this assumption of adherence to it. True remembering 
means obedience. It means faithfully walking in step with what the law is saying. And we see later on that Joshua would repeat these words as he takes the mantle of leadership in Joshua 1.13 and he exhorts the people, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And David would use the word in a similar context in Psalm 103.18 and remember to do his commandments. To truly remember the law, to truly honor it, demands doing what it teaches. Simply recalling it, simply not forgetting it, is only half the battle. I can ask my four-year-old and my two-year-old to remember what I've told them about picking up their toys. It's a whole other thing if they actually do it. The Lord through Malachi is calling his people to this kind of remembering. Don't simply recall the words, do what it says. God wants obedience. He doesn't want more of the same kind of remembering that's going on in Israel. The kind of remembering that is in their hearts and their actions and in their deeds. He desires a true and genuine willingness to follow all of the laws as is emphasized in those all-encompassing phrase, statutes and rules. Leaves nothing out. But notice, however, that the connection is not simply to Moses, as great as Moses was in Israel's history. He's not saying, remember the law because it's the law that Moses gave you. No, he says, remember the law because it's the law he gave you, which I commanded him to give you. The goal is not to follow Moses. It's not to esteem to be like Moses, or even to live up to the expectations that he set as the greatest leader in Israel's history. No, it goes much deeper because Moses was just the mere servant of the Lord. Malachi's call is to obey the lawgiver, the one who gave the law to his servant on the mountaintop, while, as Exodus 19 tells us, it was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. It is the law of God, not the law of Moses, that they are called to obey. Because the Lord is worthy, not Moses, of all honor, praise, and obedience. Because the Lord, not Moses, is the righteous one, the holy one. And we also saw, if you remember back in chapter 3, verse 6, where we find out that the Lord is also the only one who can say, I do not change. And because he doesn't change, neither does his law change. The standard hasn't moved. His law remains, as Calvin coined, the rule of perfect righteousness. And so the word we confessed earlier from Psalm 19 about the truth of God's word and the blessing of obedience remain. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So how then does this apply to us as the people of God living under the administration of the new covenant in Jesus Christ? What does it look like for us to remember the law in this way? Certainly, it does not mean we remember the law by trying to fulfill the righteous requirement of it, because we can't. But also, in great news, Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf in both his active and passive obedience. So we need not fulfill the law to meet a righteous requirement. And certainly it does not mean obeying the law to maintain our righteous standing before God. 
Because Christ, again, has secured that eternally for us in his atoning death. We have truly been set free from the law and that it no longer condemns us. Tim reminded us of those words in Romans 8 just a moment ago. We are no longer condemned as sinners who cannot live up to God's perfect standard. But still, the law, particularly the moral law, still serves as our standard. Because Christ himself says, I have not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. So then we must live up to it and obey it. Today, it still remains our source of revival, of wisdom, of rejoicing, of enlightenment and truth, as we declared in Psalm 19. In his book about the Ten Commandments, scholar J. Duma writes the following about the Christian and the law. He says, apart from Christ, the law condemns us. But in the hands of Christ, the law remains our charter of our liberty. It functions in this way as the fountain for knowing our misery and then drives us to Christ. And as a rule for our gratitude, it teaches us the form of Christian living. And from our own confession, we learn what we commonly refer to as the threefold use of the law. The law is valuable as our rule of life as our definition of sin, and as a restraint against sin, both the sin within and the sin without. So even today, as we stand in Christ and what he's accomplished, we stand still with the command to remember the law, to obey it, to follow it. And no, this doesn't mean we're legalistic. Obedience to God's law does not make us legalists. It makes us faithful. Yes, if we are running around using the law to bash people's heads in, we're not being faithful. Or if we're using it to condemn people and to withhold mercy, we are also not being faithful. But if we are, however, using the law to shape our lives, to inform our understanding, and to guide our pursuit of righteousness, then we are being faithful to remember it, as Malachi is calling the people to remember here. But let us not stop, though, just with mere obedience. May we learn to value the law, treasure it, rejoice in it, obey it, as Duma says, as our charter of liberty. Where do we find freedom? In following and remembering God's law. Israel would need to remember, and sadly their history shows that they would not. They would forget it in their own pride and rebellion. They would remain that stiff-necked and stubborn people, even when the Lord would eventually come and visit his people. Let us not wait like they waited in disobedience and forgetfulness. Let us remember. Let us taste the joy of following God's law and the blessing, the blessing found in obedience. I know that's contrary to our nature, but there is blessing found when we obey. Whether we are old or young, new to the faith, or been around for a while, let us all remember to honor the law, even as we wait. But not only do we see that the people must honor the law, but verses 5 and 6 show us that the people must also hold to the promise. And again, in the context of the entire book, these words fall in line with much of the second half of the book, particularly chapters 3 and 4. Because in those chapters we've heard, we've been seeing the emphasis on the day of the Lord. In verse 17 of chapter 2 and in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 4. So we're coming back to this promise of the day of the Lord. 
We know the people of God are waiting, and as they wait, they must not only obey the law, they must remain steadfast in their hope and stand on the promises that have already been made to them by God. And so in a way, this is part of the beauty of this almost perfect ending to the book of Malachi. There is nothing brand new that he is unfolding before them. He's not calling them to do something that they haven't already been called to do. If you will, this is the meat and potatoes. It's what they've been dining on and feasting on throughout the generations. Obedience and hope were the calls made to the people of God from the very beginning. Listen to what God told Abraham in Genesis 17. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Obey, that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. The promise. Abraham was required to obey and trust in the promises of God, and we could spend the rest of our time simply pulling out similar calls throughout the course of history to the people of God to obey and to trust. Trust and obey has been the theme of God's people throughout the ages, and it will continue to be our theme until the day Christ returns. But what promises do we see particularly here, or what promises is it that Malachi chooses to emphasize in these last verses. And again, we see there are promises that have already been made, promises that have already been addressed in this book. First, he doubles down on the promise in chapter 3, verse 1. The messenger is coming. And this time, Malachi sheds a little bit more light. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. As if the inclusion of Moses wasn't significant enough, When Moses gets brought up, their ears would have perked up a little bit. Now we see that Elijah's coming. He would be the one, as the the messenger says in chapter 3, verse 1, who would prepare the way of the Lord. And there was actually at that time and throughout history a belief in Israel that because Elijah never died, remember he went up in chariot of fire, people thought he was actually going to come back in the flesh to prepare the way. He would bring that same message that dominated much of his ministry, which was repent. If you remember, as he ministered in the northern kingdom, particularly under the reign of King Ahab, the awfully wicked king of the northern tribe. And while we know his ministry was far from easy, it was certainly powerful. It was effective. Through Elijah, rain was withheld from the people to emphasize their idolatry, to emphasize their covenant infidelity. Through Elijah, the prophets of Baal were humiliated as fire fell down from heaven, accepting Elijah's sacrifice. And then those same prophets were executed by a renewed and zealous people of God. And through Elijah, the people of God turned from idols to God to serve the living and true God, even if it was only for a short period of time. And so Malachi is promising that Elijah, one like him, whether it is him or one similar to him, would come again to do a similar work. So there was still hope. If Elijah is going to come and preach repentance, that means repentance is offered. Grace and mercy still stand to those who repent. In the context of his ministry, we see will be he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And there lies a second promise, that promise of repentance in preparation for the Lord's coming. It's that language we saw in chapter 3 of refining, of washing, 
The Lord is coming, but by his grace, he's not coming with immediate judgments. He's first coming to purify, to offer grace and repentance. He would come saying the same things that Malachi has already said, return to me, says the Lord. But notice, however, that this turning is not simply man turning to God. It is also man turning to one another. In this case, the fathers to their children. And again, this may seem a little bit odd at first, but it fits what Malachi has been emphasizing over and over again. Yes, Israel's problem was vertical. They lacked fear of God. They lacked a a fear and desire to obey his law. But the fruit of that was being seen in their peer relationships, in the relationships the community had with one another. Their marriages are falling apart. Their business transactions are, are filled with deception and treachery. There is no faithfulness. And so this promise is that Elijah would come and he would not only restore the vertical relationship, but there would be repentance amongst the people with one another. As epitomized in the home, fathers and children restored to one another. Elijah would come to address both relationships because fixing the vertical would naturally fix the horizontal. Matthew Henry writes that when he says this about this verse. Elijah shall come upon the young and the old to repent. He shall be an instrument to revive and confirm love and unity among relations and shall bring them closer and bind them faster to each other by bringing and binding them all to their God. As he preached repentance towards God, there would be repentance towards one another. And the spiritual and social life of the community would benefit greatly. And so this reality should challenge us, not simply in our families, but not beyond our family. I mean, not excluding our families. If we are genuinely repenting of our sins before God, we should see the fruit in our lives with one another. And fast forwarding to the New Testament, we do know that John the Baptist would come as the fulfillment of this promise here in Malachi chapter 4. For the angel of the Lord would tell his father these very things, and he will go before him in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn hearts of fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the, peop- for the Lord a prepared people. John would fulfill this promise by coming and preaching repentance. And such repentance would hold back that covenant curse being cut off or struck with that utter destruction. And that word is not an accidental word. It's the same curse that was rendered upon the people who dwelt in the land of Canaan as God's people came in to clear it out. God called his people to destroy everything and anything in the land, to utterly destroy them. Not out of, not out of spite, but out of judgment against God's sin. And God is saying the same fate would fall his people if they continued to rebel. It did not matter if they could claim Abraham as their physical forefather. And even John, when he came, would say the very same words. For he told the Pharisees, who, flee, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. The promise is for salvation for those who repent and judgment for those who refuse. And this leads us then to that final promise, which is the day is coming. We looked at this more extensively last week. But without a doubt, it will get here. And it will be, this time he adds a little bit more, a great and awesome day. What exactly will this greatness and awesomeness look like? It depends on what you do with the warning. For those who refuse, it will be a day filled with terror and dread. It will be the fulfillment of the axe coming down to cut down the tree, leaving it without stump or root and thrown into the fire. It will be the day when the offer of grace and repentance and God's mercy cease because Christ has come, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king, bringing judgment against sin, wickedness, and evil and all who commit them. But for those who repent, it will be a day filled with awesome delight and joy. And so just as I reminded us last week, the text calls us to be reminded again. We are standing today waiting for that same great and awesome day. And we have the promise that it is coming. Without a doubt. With certainty. And so we must be faithful to warn people of its coming. To proclaim the message of Elijah and John the Baptist to repent as long as the Lord tarries. But we also need to hold fast to our hope. We must hold fast to the promises that God has given us. That salvation is coming and waiting for those who repent, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we doubt his promises, Jesus Christ is our assurance. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, as J.C. read from us earlier on that Mount of Transfiguration. He was the one who came to be rejected and to suffer and to die so that his people would be saved. And so he is ultimately the promise that we hold to. So let us wait then with eager expectation, even as we live in a world that is continually marred by sin, marred by evil and marred by brokenness. We can't escape it. Just yesterday, remembering what happened 20 years ago reminds us of what we're waiting for. A day when days like 9-11 don't happen again. So let us wait with eager expectation. Our God is coming. Our bridegroom is on the way to come and get his bride. The king and the judge of all the earth is coming and he will put all things right by rightly placing all things under his feet. So let us hold to the promise. Let us stand firm on this hope today and every day until our Savior returns. I made the argument earlier about how the ending to the novel The Natural was a more fitting ending than the film's. The novel's ending, in my opinion, made sense, whereas the film's, as wonderful as it was, is far more confusing. Malachi's ending would certainly not fall under the umbrella of a Hollywood ending because it stresses things like obedience. It threatens judgment. And its words are both confrontational even while they're comforting. 
and yet it fits very well the overarching, mes overarching message of Malachi, even better than the ending to the book, the natural. Even knowing the reality that God's people would face relative silence over countless years after, the ending still makes sense. It calls them to hope. It calls them to obedience. And they've been given enough hope. They've been given enough to obey that they should have obeyed and held steadfast in their hope. And so Malachi's ending ultimately begs the question from us, how will you live? Or to borrow the words of Gandalf, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Israel ultimately did not use the time well. They did not live as God called them to live. They did not remember they lost hope and they faced judgment. So what will we do with the time given us, whether it's 400 more years or 40 more minutes? How will we spend our time waiting? Will we hold fast in faithfulness to the covenant God has made with us in Jesus Christ? Will we obey and live in obedience in the time that we have? Will we trust in the promises of the return of Christ and all the blessings that it will bring in our decision of what to do with the time? Or to put it even better than Gandalf, as scandalous as that might sound, the Apostle Peter, better than Gandalf, towards the end of his letter asked the people, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, obedience, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, holding the promise. May we live in holiness and godliness as we wait, and may we wait with hope-filled anticipation and joy. Covenant faithfulness means obedience to God's word and trust in his promise. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this book. Because, God, we in very many similar ways are a people who are waiting. And God, there are days when the waiting is difficult, it is a struggle, it is agonizing, and yet God, you call us to covenant faithfulness, to remember your law by obeying it, of finding it as our charter of freedom, that which brings us hope and peace and delight. And then God, you also call us to hold fast to your promises, and they are many, and yet your word tells us they are also declared yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So God, may we find hope. May we find uh, motivation towards obedience, even as we await the coming of our Savior. And may people see us and see an obedient people, a hope-filled people, and wonder why, and come, and hear, and turn and be known as your people as a result of our covenant faithfulness as your body here. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.